Welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus. And in today's video, we're going to be jumping back into our series in the book of John, John the Gospel. And uh, in today's video, we're going to be talking about how Jesus performed a miracle to, to ultimately perform the miracle. Stay tuned. Well, welcome back everyone. My name is Lucas. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church. And Evangel Church, we are a physical location church here in Powell River, British Columbia, Canada. And so if you're visiting from out of town, we're so glad once again that you are here with us. However, if you live in the region, we'd love to meet you, love to have you into our house. Uh, we're right on the corner of Joyce and Manson in Powell River and uh, 10 o'clock every Sunday, you're welcome to come. We'd love to meet you in person. But let's dive right in. Today is gonna to be a little more of a teach than a preach. We're kinda of gonna go really step-by-step step through the chapter, chapter nine of the Gospel of John. So if you do have your Bibles, why don't you turn to John chapter nine. If you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible. We would love to get you a Bible. Visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible. And there are links right there that we can get a Bible to you right now as we kinda of track together today. Now here's the deal. Before we jump in today, we need to kind of approach this subject matter with some care. Uh, we're jumping into chapter 9 of John, as I said, and this is a story about a blind man who Jesus ultimately heals. Now, we're going to be talking about, you know, sin and revelation and what this story ultimately is trying to um, speak to us as, as John writes this story out for us. There, there's a point to the story that goes beyond just the healing and we have to be careful with this because sometimes you know though Jesus heals the man in this story sometimes we can kind of create theology and kind of ideas about healing and faith and what this all means and we just need to kind of walk this out because sometimes the only conclusion if we read this just alone as a standalone story we we can if we're not careful conclude that uh, Jesus is looking to that the only way for him to kind of give glory to God is through healing and that's just not the case you know we need to realize that this story it speaks it's going to speak to the sovereignty of god to the plans of god uh, it's going to speak to so many different things and, and here's the here's the deal friends god heals god is our healer you know christ is the great physician that is so true and, and we seek healing we pray for healing we walk in faith and we declare it however however Healing is not the only avenue in which God is glorified. Here's an alternative, okay? Just bear with me. Here's an alternative. Because if we lose sight of this, we, we kind of go off track right from the get-go. Sometimes, one who walks out their affliction and suffering in this world and remains faithful to God and accepts His grace for day-to-day -day and walks it out, that story brings glory to God just as much as the story of those that are healed. So as we kind of go through this, I just want to get that out there right from the get-go because we can't just take one story and create a theology around it. We have to look at all of Scripture. We have to look at all of what's going on. And so in this moment, though this blind man is healed, 
His healing is actually not the main drive and main point of the story. And we're gonna discover that together today. So I hope this kind of sets a framework because some, maybe you're here and you're watching and you're going, man, I could use a healing in this area of my life or my body or whatever it may be. And friend, seek healing. But in the midst of seeking healing, we, we declare that God is sovereign, that his plans are greater than our plans, and that his perspective is broader than our perspective. And so sometimes as we walk through affliction and suffering in this world and remain faithful to Jesus and walk in joy and peace despite it, that can bring just as much glory to God as the one who is healed. And so let's walk in that tension together today. All right, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to chapter 9 of the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament, and we are going to just dump, jump right in. As he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of God who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice the assumption being made in this moment. Who sinned is the question being asked. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, at this time in the first century, the Jewish belief system had developed this idea, this sort of um, worldview that if you were suffering or under affliction, that it was a direct result of sin. That sin was the result, um, it, or affliction and, and suffering was the result of your sin and your wrongdoing. And so someone who is crippled from birth or blind from or any of it, there was this assumption automatically that there was sin in their lives. And in fact, uh, there would be debates and arguments about whether or not a baby in the womb could do acts of sin, which would then um, <laughs> affect the rest of their lives in terms of how uh, any kind of affliction or anything that happened. This were like real debates among rabbis in the first century. And so notice the disciples here. They're not asking if sin, this suffering was a result of sin. They're asking Simply, who sinned? The assumption already in their perspective is that somebody sinned. It was either this man or his parents that sinned. And so they're trying to discover who sinned. Now, like this is a false kind of generalization when it comes to pain and suffering in the world. Sin and suffering is not inextricably linked. It, it, sure, in a general sense, um, in a general sense, we all walk through suffering and affliction because of sin, right? Because sin has entered the world. So in a general sense, yes. But this is much more specific. This is talking about this individual's personal sin that put them into this circumstance. And there's an assumption that there's sin there. Now, Jesus, he's going to surprise them with this answer. And uh, as he answers this, we need to understand that that our theological framework today, as we look at scripture, is not to just automatically assume that someone walking through suffering, affliction, or brokenness in their body, in their mind, in their spirit, or even in a relationship, the assumption is not that they've sinned, okay? 
it, now here's the deal. It can be. And so this is where we have to be careful. So let's just dig out what's going on here. Uh, I think Jesus surprises them with his answer. He says, neither it was this man uh, nor his parents that sinned. So he goes on to talk about how this moment was not because of sin. This moment was actually for the glorification, the, the um, eyes being turned to God. And we're going to see kind of how that all plays out. But Jesus surprises them here. Now, before we go on, uh, we can't now look at this just like we couldn't look at the story as a whole and, and create a theology. We can't look at this one moment here and say, okay, uh, Jesus said that this man did not sin, nor did his parents sin. And so suffering and affliction is not a result of sin across the board ever. Well, that's not true either. We have to take the whole of scripture to develop our biblical worldview. In this case, it wasn't. However, we do know in other cases that sin and the consequences of sin play a part in the affliction and the brokenness of the world. So how, how are we to kind of practically navigate this? If, if, if in this case it was not sin that caused affliction and suffering, but in other cases it may be, what do we do? Well, friends, we, we look to the Spirit. We look to the Holy Spirit and we look to the Word of God and we look at lives and we line them up with Scripture and the standard of Scripture and living and holiness and righteousness. But we also look to the Holy Spirit who gives us discernment to begin to determine case by case, moment by moment, season by season, um, whether or not sin or other uh, factors are playing a part in the suffering and the afflictions of people. And so we just have to be careful that we don't um, just make assumptions here and just jump straight to sin. Because sometimes the church has been really good at that. And, and I mean good by that, like in a bad way. And so we can't just go to sin. So, so what's the next thing that we naturally have to ask here? Because as we read this, we kind of, it kind of sounds like God, like the way they word it and the way it's translated, it kind of sounds like God caused this man to be blind so that this moment could happen. And, um, you know, as a pastor, this kind of puts me in a bit of a dilemma because what I want to say, right, my feelings, what I would like to say is that, no, there's no way God did that. God is just simply redeeming a broken moment and he's taking this moment to then reveal himself and Jesus. But, but that's not always the case. Like, again, we can't just take one instance in scripture and create a theology around it. We got to look at kind of all of scripture to understand affliction and suffering in this world. And it's more complicated. You know, we see through scripture that God permits suffering to, to be afflicted. Like um, if you read the book of Job. Now, God didn't like do it, but God gave permission for the enemy to come against Job. Uh, the Egyptians, you know, they suffered plagues. Now that was God's hand. That was God doing that. And so we see God directly causing suffering and affliction through the plagues and the judgment of God directly. Um, the book of Revelation contains judgments that are poured out by God and with his authority. Uh, Israel suffered moments of God's intervention and judgment over them. And so, again, there's complexity here when we start looking at affliction and suffering. And so we have to just be careful that we walk this out. The question that we have to ask is, can we reconcile all of this with God being good. And, and I, I really believe that we can. You know, we're dealing with a being who is the first cause of everything we know. 
You know, he knows all. He exists outside of space and time. Uh, time is, is a construct that he created. He exists by definition. He can't exist within the construct of time because he created time. And so God is removed from the constructs that we know to be time and space and all of that. And as a result, God is uh, present in this moment right now. But he's also present in the beginning, hovering over the depths. And he's also present in the end of, of, of time because he's not constricted by time. And so here we have this idea of a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful. He's all-present. And so, and not just present like we think about around the world. He's present around the world and over time. And so here we have this complex being that sees this great grand picture and we have to believe that, as Scripture teaches us, that God is good, that His ways are perfect, that He's perfect in His justice and in His mercy and in His grace. And so as we kind of wrestle with this moment, this idea of suffering and affliction in the world, we have to walk in this tension that God is going to bring about the perfect outcomes based on what he knows to be true about the world and about each and every heart and each and every individual across space and time. Paul writes this in uh, Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the, for, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have, we, we are the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You know, our perspective as it pertains to suffering in this world is so small. It's so small. If you could ask the blind man who had been healed what the greater miracle was, and we're going to discover what the greater miracle becomes in this story. But what would he say it was the, the ability to see with his eyes for the rest of his natural life? Or would he speak to the opening of his spiritual eyes and a revelation of Jesus as his Messiah and his entry and his way to eternal life. Which, which one do you think he's going to be focusing on if you ask him that question in this moment? Of course, it would be eternal life. The perspective, the suffering that he experienced was so small and limited in comparison to the life eternal that he has been given. You know, what do you think you would say after roughly 2,000 years being in the presence of Jesus this whole time? This is what it is to have an eternal perspective. 
God is good. We, we know this to be true, but he's also perfect and he's just in his actions. And we need to believe that and have faith that that is the case. The miracle is what this moment in John kind of points us towards. The main theme of the story has nothing to do with Jesus as the healer of the blind and everything to do with Jesus being the one that opens our eyes spiritually to see the eternal perspective. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That was written by Paul, by the way, to the Romans. And Paul suffered hard in this world. Paul suffered greatly in this world. And yet he writes these words because his eyes are open to this eternal perspective and suffering though it has a place in this world and though it creates tension for each of us, when we have an eternal perspective and our eyes are open to what is to come, that suffering is diminished and his face uh, shines brightly through it. So all that to say, I don't know if God simply intervened in this man's blindness and brought glory to the Father or if God actually caused this man to be born blind for the purposes of this moment and Jesus being revealed to the world. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know, and, 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 and neither do you. Um, but we have to, either way, no matter what it was or what it is, either way, I can reconcile the goodness, the justice, and the grace and love of God. Either way. So let's go on. Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. It's interesting to note that what Jesus did here in terms of using saliva was not unique. Um, actually, there were practices in the first century where this was done. Uh, there was beliefs that people of... Um, good reputation that their saliva as a balm would bring healing. There was also a belief around um, this idea of uh, fasting saliva. And so healers and physicians would fast for a time and a season and then use their saliva as a healing balm and in different kind of ointments and things to help bring kind of healing. Now here's the deal. I don't believe for a second that Jesus was all about that in terms of believing that that's where the healing was in, in the actual saliva. However, here's what I do think God was doing as a grace to this man is he was using a common practice among physicians of the day, of the time, and he was putting this man at ease by doing something familiar to him. And as, as he did that, he's increasing this man's expectation. You could say he's increasing this man's faith. And so this man gets the mud put on his eyes and then he's given directions. He's given a prescription to go to the pool of Siloam and rinse his eyes. 
And Jesus' miracle in this man doesn't take place when Jesus puts the mud in his eyes. It actually takes place when this man takes steps of faith and steps into this pool and washes his eyes. And that's when the miracle takes place. So much so that by the time he gets back, Jesus is gone. The crowd asks him, do you, do you know where he is? And this man's like, I don't know where he is. And this is going to play a role because we're going to see throughout this story, this progression of this man's understanding of what actually happened in this moment. Now, in this moment, this crowd brings the blind man to the Pharisees. So verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly, had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day, of course. Jesus always doing it on the Sabbath, trying to make a point. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, the blind man, he is a prophet. I want you to notice where this blind man um, now lands in terms of who Jesus is. Uh, earlier, they asked, where is he? And he didn't even know where Jesus was, let alone who Jesus was. Now he's brought before the Pharisees. And in this moment, he declares that, that, that he believes Jesus is a prophet. But they keep pressing him because they don't believe that, that he was formally blind. They don't believe his testimony. They don't believe his witnessed account. And so they're trying to do everything they can do to kind of find contradictions in this man's story. And they're about to do what we kind of all do when something contradicts our worldview. They're going to look for confirmation bias. They're going to look really, really hard. I mean, if they were doing this today, they'd be on Facebook and Reddit and just all the spots trying to just discover something that's just going to tell them what they want to hear. And that's what they're about to do here. They go and they get to this guy's parents and they drill them about their son and their take on who Jesus is. And so these parents are now before the Pharisees and they know what's going on. In fact, they were scared. It says, the scripture says they had fear in this moment because they didn't want to take a position. They didn't want to take a side. I'm sure as parents, they were so excited to see their son being able to see for the first time in his life. They're recognizing the miracle. They know, you know, a mom always knows their son. I mean, of course they know who this guy is. They know it's their son. And yet in this moment, they have this fear because they know that to really walk this out, they're going to take a side. And of course that side is going to be Jesus because they know a miracle has happened. So they actually say, you know what? He's of age. He's over, he's over the age of accountability. So you talk to him because uh, we're not going to give an answer. We're not going to answer for him. So they kind of defer back to this man that was previously blind. Now you can just see the frustration growing here. They ask the man to tell his story over and over and over again. They're looking for him to trip up. They're looking for him to contradict himself. They're looking for anything that they can hold on to that will, um, that will kind of confirm their bias and what they want to be true about Jesus and this moment and this story. They're on a mission for confirmation bias. But 
We've focused so much on the Pharisees over the last few weeks as we go through this series. So I think it's time that we kind of notice what this man does. Because there's something significant about the progression of this man's story throughout all of chapter 9. In verse 24, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Notice the level of revelation that this man has. He's not sure if Jesus is a sinner, like the Pharisees are are saying. Um, But what he does know, he knows that he was once blind, and now he can see. He knows that a miracle has taken place. He knows without a shadow of a doubt that his interaction with Jesus led him to this moment of being able to see. But then we see the man, he starts to get a little more bold and feisty. You know, after all, these men are attacking the man who just changed his life. And so verse 30, the man answered, Why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. You know, it's so funny because in this moment, this man is preaching truth. This man, if, if, they, if the Pharisees had just taken a step back and looked at their own teachings, they would have seen that this man was speaking the truth. But because they don't want to come to grips with who Jesus is presenting himself to be, um, they just can't allow this to happen. And so this man, you can see this kind of progression. He's growing in his boldness and his faith, and he's kind of putting himself out there. He knows that this is a contentious thing. He knows that these men are out to get Christ. It was public knowledge. It was talked about. I mean, when Jesus showed up at the, the Festival of Booths, I mean, it was whispered among the crowd because everybody knew to keep their mouths shut. This was public knowledge that the Pharisees were out to get Jesus. And yet this man is boldly kind of proclaiming who, who Jesus, as far as his understanding of who Jesus might be. And I love this progression because it speaks to a man whose eyes are being opened in a much deeper way than just physical Sight. This, this man is now pushing back against the leadership of the day and saying, wait a second, um, what you guys are implying, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up with what we know is true. And based on your own teachings, Jesus can't be a sinner doing these miracles apart from God. And for the last two weeks, we've been chatting about um, our, our vision statement here at Evangel Church, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And we spoke to the progression, you know, from one exploring faith to to those having a revelation of Jesus and receiving his love for themselves. But then also walking out this path, this, this journey of sanctification, looking more and more like Jesus each day. And, and I can't help but see this progression throughout this story in chapter 9 in the life of this once blind man. And he's exploring faith. He's putting two and two together. And, it's, and he's now coming to this, these kind of conclusions, these profound conclusions about who Jesus kind of must be. 
And even with the adversity and the pushback of the society around him, he's discovering Jesus. Friends, sometimes I think that we can look at our society, we can look at the environment in which we are sharing the gospel and living out the gospel life. Um, and we may think to ourselves, like, this is an impossibility. This is such a, a hard place, a hard place to, to water seed and plant seed. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus is revealing himself in every area, every moment, through every miracle, through every sign, through every wonder, through every grace, through everything that he, he does. He's revealing himself to people. And we can't lose sight that even in the midst of this hard place for this blind man, he's starting to get this boldness and this understanding of what's going on. And it's just such a, a picture of hope for us. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This account starts with a miracle, but then it concludes with the miracle. And this moment right here is the miracle. Remember, signs and wonders only exist to serve the purpose of causing us to see and discover a revelation of Jesus. Signs and wonders of themselves mean nothing apart from them pointing us to Christ Jesus. And the progression of this man's faith has now led him to this moment. His miracle simply was a tool that served this moment right here, right now the opening of his spiritual eyes, the discovering of who Jesus is. And now as, as we conclude, Jesus, he connects the dots for us now. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Spiritual blindness is an act of the will. I don't care what anybody says. Spiritual blindness around the things of God, the one true God, the creator of all things, is an act of the will. The guilt remains on those who claim to see and willfully reject what is clearly in front of them. This, this, this story, like so many in the Gospels, is one of contrasts. A blind man whose miracle of sight leads to an eternal perspective and understanding of who Jesus is. Contrasted against men who had all the knowledge in the world, understood the Old Testament inside and out, and yet willfully were blind to who Jesus revealed himself to be. This story leaves us with a question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because I believe by the Spirit, he's revealing himself to each and every one of us. And the miracle of this man's sight pales in comparison to the life that he now leads in Christ Jesus. And maybe we remember that as we suffer in this world, as we walk through affliction, let us not shake our fists at the heavens, but rather let's just simply surrender to the God of the heavens, whose grace is sufficient, 
whose mercy is deep, whose love is for us, whose joy is our strength, whose peace he gives as a gift when we don't even deserve to have it. And he walks us through this life to that moment when we begin to understand that our suffering and the afflictions of this world pale in comparison to the eternal realities of what he's calling us into through Christ Jesus. So Lord, I pray for each and every one that's hearing and walking this out, exploring faith with us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just give us a picture of Jesus. That God, we do, those that are sick among us, Lord, we pray for your healing. We ask for your healing, uh, your divine healing, your divine touch in Jesus' name. But Lord, may that healing, may it serve a greater purpose. May it glorify God, but may it also reveal Christ the world around each and every one of us. And Lord, we pray, we pray that even as we walk through suffering and affliction in this world, that you would give us an eternal perspective. That Lord, we would see it like Paul saw it, in light of eternity. And that Lord, we would see it just simply diminish and pale in comparison to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for everyone exploring faith, that you would give them a revelation of Jesus. That God, you would bring them to that moment, that place where they would simply in their heart and in their, in their spirit say, yes, Lord, I receive your love. I receive your love for myself. And Lord, that you would do a miracle in that because that is the miracle. Salvation, redemption, forgiveness, that is the miracle that you came to um, work out in each and every one of us. So Lord, may we not be those willfully blind, but rather, Lord, would you cause our eyes to be open that we might see uh, the eternal realities that you, have, uh, that you have placed right in front of us through Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us. I know this is a bit of a, a different kind of sermon and format, but I hope that it's been a blessing to you. And I would just, I would encourage you, uh, we didn't really go through all of chapter nine. I would encourage you even maybe right now as this kind of ends, that you would just pull out chapter nine and you just read the entire thing through and you just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you lead, guide, and teach me in this moment? God bless you. Have a great week, everyone.